I am so excited. I'm basically giddy for this Parsha podcast. Now, if this sounds a little bit different than it usually does, it's because I'm actually using a brand new microphone. And the story behind that is that I had always coveted a certain microphone. I'm not going to get into the details not to bore you, but there's a certain microphone that I really wanted. But I couldn't justify buying it. I'm a bit too frugal. But December 5th is my birthday. And my colleagues at Torch who knew that I really wanted this microphone, they got together and they bought it for me. And therefore, I want to dedicate this episode of the Parsha Podcast in honor of my colleagues, Rabbi Arian Zahavawalbi, Rabbi Chaim and Saitel Busco, Rabbi Yaakov and Devorah Cohn, our board president, Dan Coleman and his wife, Shauna, Scott Cameraman, and our office administrator, Amy Merkin. Thank you so much for your friendship. It is an honor and a privilege to work alongside you. It means a lot to me, and I'm very excited to have this microphone and to be able to use it. Please, God, in good health and share Torah to the rest of the world. Before we get, I want to give a quick shout out to my dear friend, Dan Coleman, and his podcast that we've mentioned a few times, the Shema Podcast. He just recently had an amazing interview with Nisim Black, who, if you don't know who he is, he is a recording artist. He's a senior musician who's a convert, and he was an African-American non-Jew who converted, became Jewish, and became Shomer Shabbos fully observant. He has an incredible story to share, and they discussed some really interesting things about what it's like to kind of change your identity and to adopt a new identity and how you navigate the tricky transition from being someone who's either not religious or not observant or an atheist or someone who's not even Jewish and becoming Jewish. I found it very fascinating. Check it out. Dan Coleman's podcast, The Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed. Give it a listen. And as always, my email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. So this week is Parshas Vayeshev. And the storyline basically follows that of Joseph. Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob. Joseph, the beloved son in the eyes of his father, reviled in the eyes of his brothers. He gets some special garments. He has dreams that seem to have an aura of megalomania to it. He is sold as a slave after not being killed, after being thrown in a pit. And we know the story quite well. He gets to Egypt. He rises to the top of the household that he is owned by Potiphar. He gets seduced by Potiphar's wife. He resists the temptation, gets thrown in prison. And at the end of the parasha, we kind of end off on a cliffhanger where he is wallowing in prison and the two assistants, the two attendants of Pharaoh, the baker and the butler, he interpreted their dreams, but they forgot, or at least the butler forgot Joseph after he left. Now, Joseph is forever lauded and praised for his resistance to sin with the wife of Potiphar. In fact, Joseph is forever called Joseph, Joseph Hatzadik, Joseph the righteous, and that is because of his righteous and valiant resistance of his master's wife's seductions. And our sages tell us because of his heroism, because of his courage, because of his valor and gallantry in fighting the Yetzirah and fighting the inclination, he merited to be the sustainer of the whole world during the famine. There's actually a beautiful midrash that I saw this week for the first time. I absolutely love this 
Midrash. The Midrash quotes a verse in Psalms chapter 114. The sea saw something and it fled, it ran away. This is talking about when the Jewish people, when they come to the sea, by the splitting of the sea episode, the sea witnessed something and it fled and asks the Midrash, what did the sea witness? What did it see when the Jewish people arrived that forced it to run away and to split? Says the Midrash, the sea saw the bones of Joseph, and the Almighty beckoned the sea to split and to flee and to run away. And you know why? In what merit? Because Joseph ran away. Joseph fled, and the verse says, and he fled and he ran outside, and consequently, because Joseph fled from sin, the sea fled from the bones of Joseph. Accordingly, this one deed that Joseph did, this heroic resistance to sin, earned the entire Jewish nation salvation during the splitting of the sea episode. Now, there's a very interesting Rashi that I want to zone in on and focus upon. The verse tells us, this is chapter 39, verse 11, it was this day on this day, and he came home to do his work, and there is no man from the people of the household there with him in the home. So what does it mean that Joseph came home to do his work? This is the fateful day when he's going to have that final encounter with his master's wife, with Potiphar's wife, and she's going to disrobe him, and she's going to claim, of course, lying that it was Joseph who was trying to seduce her, and that's why Joseph gets thrown into prison. What does it mean, asked Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, what does it mean that Joseph was going to do his work? So Rashi brings two opinions. Either what it means is he was going to, to do the regular work that he did every day in the household. Alternatively, says Rashi, he was going to give in. He was going to capitulate. He was going to sin. He was finally, after all this temptation and all these efforts and all these overtures of his master's wife, he was finally going to give in and he was finally going to sin. And what happened? He ran away. Well, what changed? Why did he suddenly get cold feet and run away? Says Rashi. Very interesting. He saw the visage, the countenance of his father in the window, and that prompted him to reconsider. And he said, you know what? I'm not into this. And he fled. That's what Rashi tells us, quoting from the Talmud in the book of Sota, on page 37. Now, if you look at the actual source in the Talmud, you find a little bit more detail. At this time, at this critical juncture, Joseph is about to capitulate. He's about to give in. He's about to yield to the seductions of his master's wife. And he's there, and he looks at the window, and a visage of his father appears to him, And the visage tells him, the image, the hologram, if you will, tells him, in the future, Joseph, you should know, your brothers, your 11 brothers, are going to be etched on the stones of the apron-like garment, the aphod of the high priest. The high priest, we're going to read in the end of the book of Exodus, the high priest 
wore special vestments, special garments. And one of them was the afot. It was like an apron-like garment. And the back, it had two straps similar to suspenders that went up onto the shoulders and a little bit past the shoulders of the high priest. And there it would connect to the choshen, to the breastplate. But on the top, by the shoulders, there were two stones, one on each shoulder. And in each one of the stones, it had six names of the sons of Jacob. So this visage, this image, this appearance, this hologram of his father tells him, this is what's going to be in the future. There's going to be an aphod, high priest is going to wear it, and the 12 sons of Jacob are going to be etched on those stones. And you are supposed to be there with them. But if you sin, and if you capitulate, if you give in, if you yield, then you're not going to be included in that rarefied fraternity. You instead are going to be disgraced as a patron of harlots. Is that what you want? Asks the visage, the hologram. And Joseph mustered up some courage. And he said, you know what? I'm not doing it. And he ran outside. He fled. At this time, we can imagine, you know, Joseph wasn't thinking clearly. He wasn't thinking rationally. After all this seduction, he finally yielded. Apparently. And then he gets this dose of sobriety. Thanks to this very vivid image, this hologram of his father, and his lust subsided. And he's able to gather his composure and to not capitulate. What an interesting teaching. There's this appearance of his father that pops up in the window and kind of threatens him. And it says, well, if you sin, you will be booted from the aphod, from the apron-like garment. And when Joseph realized what he stands to lose... Well, then cooler heads prevailed and he was able to resist. Now, I think this story, as presented to us in Rashi and the Talmud, I think it raises some interesting questions. First of all, how did Joseph get this hologram? How did it just appear to him in the mirror? What's the process to get that? Is this a miracle? Is this something that we can maybe get ourselves? But also, you know, if you think about it, Joseph was threatened. He was told that he's going to have to suffer eternal consequences if he yields to the temptation. And you know what? He was able to withstand. And that's incredible. But if you think about it, why is Joseph praised so effusively for this deed After all, he had this threat. It was looming above him. It's no big deal to resist when you recognize what you stand to lose if you go ahead with it. Yet Joseph is praised nonetheless. But here's the question I want to pose. There's a couple of moving parts, so bear with me. There's a concept in Jewish philosophy called a mitzvah lishma. A mitzvah done for the correct intention. And this idea has other names. It's also called Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name. It's also called a mitzvah that's done out of love of God. But what this means is that there are certain mitzvahs, certain good deeds that could be done with the highest intention and highest motivation. And when someone does a mitzvah, 
with the best motivation possible. It's the best kind of deed possible. This is not an ordinary mitzvah. Of course, every mitzvah is great. Every time someone fulfills the will of God, it's amazing. Of course. But when someone does a mitzvah, a deed, a positive deed, as per the instruction of God, but they do it with total dedication, and there's no other motivation, there's no other intention other than fulfilling the will of God, such a mitzvah is really in a class by itself. And the Rambam, in fact, tells us that such mitzvah, even one such mitzvah, done over a lifetime, if a person does one mitzvah, lishma, for its intended purposes, for no other ulterior reasons, just because you want to fulfill the will of God, a mitzvah out of love, a mitzvah that has Kiddush Hashem within it, you are guaranteed to have a golden ticket to eternity. Olam to merit a place in the world to come. The yearning of every Jew, the yearning of every soul. What guarantees you a ticket to Olam says the Rambam, a very powerful idea, even one mitzvah, that if you do it properly, lishma for its intended purposes, one mitzvah like that guarantees you a life of eternity. Of course, every mitzvah is great. Every mitzvah is cherished. But even a wonderful mitzvah can be tainted. It can be tarnished. You can say, hey, I'm doing it uh, for all kinds of other motivations. I want people to like me. I want people to think I'm righteous. I want people to give me honor. There could be all kinds of other motivations and intentions that sully the mitzvah a little bit. It's not perfect. Of course, it's cherished. Of course, it's amazing. But most mitzvahs are not completely, exquisitely pure. But when someone does a mitzvah with pure intentions, says the Rambam, that assures them that they will have eternal reward as a result. What a powerful idea. Now, what is an example of such a mitzvah? What's an example of a mitzvah that's done so completely, totally, perfectly with the right intentions? What is such an example? So the Rambam gives us one example. This is featured in the Laws of the Foundations of Torah, chapter 5, halacha number 10. And the Rambam tells us, if someone withholds from a sin, or they do a mitzvah, not from anything in the world, not because of fear, not because of dread, not to seek honor, only because of the Creator, blessed is He. And you ready for this? Like, says the Rambam. Here's an example. Like the withholding of Yosef, of Joseph the righteous, Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef HaTzadik, when he withheld himself from sitting with his master's wife, that kind of mitzvah, behold, Hashem, behold, this person has fulfilled Kiddush Hashem, and they have done a mitzvah, one mitzvah, perfectly. When the Rambam wants to find the paradigmatic example of a mitzvah that is done without any other motivation aside from fulfilling the will of God. A mitzvah done with the highest motivation. Which example does he give us? He gives us the example of Joseph withholding, refraining from committing a sin with his master's wife. So first of all, I think this does show us something very interesting, that if someone refrains 
withholds from sinning, even though they haven't done anything. In fact, they have withheld themselves from doing something, so there's inaction. That in itself is tantamount to being a mitzvah, which is a nice idea to know that resistance of temptation is equivalent to the active fulfillment of a mitzvah. But there's an obvious question here. Do you see the question? We know that this mitzvah that Joseph fulfilled of refraining from sin with his master's wife was a huge mitzvah. But can we say it was free of external motivations? Quite the contrary. The Talmud tells us clearly, Rashi tells us, the Talmud tells us, that he knew that if he went ahead with it, he would be bounced from the ephod, from the apron-like garment of the high priest. And he would be called a patron of harlots. So I can accept if you tell me that, you know what, this was very righteous, this was very good, this was amazing, this is laudable. But to say that it's perfect, to say that it's free of any other motivations, apparently that's against what the Talmud tells us. And yet, when the Ram has to select a mitzvah to portray, to represent this idea of a mitzvah lishma, of a mitzvah, done with the sole motivation of fulfilling the will of God, done without any other motivations, this is the one he chooses? Wow, I love this question. Such a strange teaching in the Rambam. This is a perfect mitzvah bereft, free, clear of any side motivation. The Talmud literally tells us the motivation. I'm I'm really excited. I'm giddy, both from this microphone and from the question, mostly from the question. The Rambam could have given any example. But he gives an example that has an obvious question on it. So if I didn't know anything about the Rambam, I would say, well, Talmud's pretty vast. There's a lot of citations. It's possible the Rambam forgot it. If you didn't know the Rambam at all, that's maybe what you would say. But of course, we have some passing familiarity with the Rambam, and we know that that's not possible. So I think that this is an amazing opportunity. Whenever we see a teaching, a citation that has such an obvious problem to it, it's a great chance to learn something. And I would venture that the Rambam uses this story, Joseph refrained from sinning with his master's wife, as the paradigmatic example, not despite the fact that this hologram appeared to him in the window, but precisely because of it. This appearance, this visage, countenance of the father of Jacob that appeared to Joseph in the window and said to him, if you go ahead with this, you are going to be evicted from the aphod, that in itself proves, this demonstrates why this is an unparalleled mitzvah. What an amazing question. I feel like I could really call it a day. Take my mic with me, go home. This is good enough. But because, of course, the Parsha podcast is just the best audience in the world, I'm going to give you maybe a few answers. Now, when I thought of this question, I actually came up with three different answers, and I'm going to share two of them with you. And the third one, I won't share with you, and I'm sorry about that. But here's my promise. If we ever get to meet in person, and I have met a fair number of the listeners of the Parsha Podcast in person, 
If we ever get to meet in person, you can remind me what's the third answer. And please, God, if I still remember it, I will give you the super-duper secret third answer. Okay, so let's just repeat the question because, like we said, there's a lot of moving parts. The Ram tells us that the mitzvah of Joseph refraining from sinning with his master's wife is the best example that you could ever find of a mitzvah that was done perfectly without any external motivations. And the question is, the Talmud says quite clearly that a hologram of his father appeared to him in the window and said to him, don't sin, because if you do, you are going to lose something very important, namely your place amongst your brothers, your place amongst the tribes of Israel. So that clearly influenced Joseph. And that is what gave him the fortitude, the wherewithal, to overcome his temptation. So when he refrained from sinning, there was a reason. He didn't want to be demoted. He didn't want to be ostracized. He didn't want to be the pariah of the family. That seems to be an example of a mitzvah that was done for an alternative reason. Yet the Ram says this mitzvah exemplifies, personifies, embodies a mitzvah done lishma, a mitzvah done without any extra motivating factors. So I want to resolve this in two different ways. I want to go back to one of the questions I mentioned earlier. How indeed did Joseph get the hologram? How did he have this amazing visitation of his father in the window, telling him, warning him not to sin? How did he get that? So I think there's two different opinions as to how he received it. Either it was a miracle. The Almighty intervened and the Almighty aided him in it. The Almighty created this image of his father in the window. The second opinion says, no, it was not a miracle. Joseph conjured this image himself. He imagined it to happen and thus he brought it out himself. And that's how he got this image, which helped him when he was about to sin. And I think both of them are potential explanations to this problematic teaching of the Rambam. And both of them contain, I think, very valuable lessons for us. So if we say that it was a miracle, the hologram was a miracle, when do miracles happen? When do breakthroughs happen? There's a principle in Jewish philosophy that says that you only have a breakthrough, you only have a miracle when you have committed yourself to the cause, a hundred percent, you give it all you've got. And when there's nothing else that you can do, then, and only then, does the Almighty step in. There's many examples of this principle. So the Ramban, for example, in not last week, the previous week's parsha talks about how Jacob made tremendous riches for his father in labor when he was working as an employee, tending to Laban's flock and sheep and cattle. And the verse tells us in chapter 31, verse 6, when Jacob is speaking to his wife, he tells him, you know that I have worked for your father with all my strength. And the Ramban explains that Jacob, as an employee, he invested every ounce of his effort to work for Laban. And what happened afterwards? 
after he gave it his all, then the Almighty gave him a bounty of blessing that unlocked divine goodness, divine prosperity. Similar idea. You want to have material blessing? You first have to give all that you could do with all your strength. And once you've given 100%, the Almighty steps in and makes the, so to speak, miracle and allows the supernatural prosperity to be unlocked. Another example, when Jacob is encountering or preparing to encounter his brother Asaph. Again, the Ramban tells us he prepared with a bribe, with a tribute, with a gift, and he prepared for war, and only then did he pray. And what the Ramban intimates is that, of course, God saved him, but God only saved him, God only intervened after he did everything that he could have done without miracles. Similarly, with the splitting of the sea, the aforementioned miracle that we're going to read about in the book of Exodus, the Midrash tells us that there was one man named Nachshon from the tribe of Judah who jumped into the water. And he went deeper and deeper into the water, and the water did not split. And only once the water got all the way up to his nostril, and he couldn't have gone a second further without potentially risking drowning, only then did the water split. Again, he gave 100% of his own personal effort, and only then, once he had maxed out on his personal effort, he couldn't do any more from, based upon his own strength and abilities, only then did it click, did it trigger the miracle. My grandfather, of blessed memory, used to tell a story when he founded his yeshiva and the conditions were really deplorable. They had no money. They had no students. It was really dreadful. And there were literally on the verge of starvation. This is probably 1948, 1949, 1950. And he went to the Chazonish, who was the leader of world Jewry at the time. And the Chazonish pointed to his nostrils. And he said, you have to wait until the water reaches over here. And only then does the, does the sea split. It's the same kind of idea. You want a miracle from God? Miracles don't happen for the lazy. Miracles don't happen for the loafers. You have to give everything you've got. And only then can you even anticipate the possibility, the feasibility of getting a divine miracle. You give your all and it's not possible. There's no way you could do it by yourself. But when you give it your all in whatever field we're talking about and you've matched it all out, then the Almighty says, okay, now it's time for a miracle. Joseph was resisting temptation with his master's wife. Talmud tells us every single day, every minute of every day, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, was trying to seduce him. And she changed her clothing, we're told, every single day, multiple times. Always trying new angles to try to ensnare Joseph. And Joseph resists and resists and resists and resists. He is all hands on deck to resisting temptation. And then there was an intensification of the eight star of the evil inclination. And there is an intensification of the lust. And he reaches the point where he can resist no longer, meaning he has matched out all the efforts that he could do, and now it's just beyond his control. And indeed, the verse tells us that he had reached the tipping point, he had reached the point where he was going to capitulate because the temptation was 
exceeding his ability to resist. He was resisting as much as he could, but he could resist no longer. And what happens? Once you give 100%, and now there's still a challenge ahead of you, that's when the Almighty steps in. And what does the Almighty do? The Almighty makes this miraculous visage, the miraculous hologram of the Father appear, and that supernaturally, miraculously, saves Joseph from sinning. And thus, this miracle actually proves that Joseph did absolutely everything in his power to resist. He gave it his all. And only then did the Almighty bail him out. But this is Joseph investing everything he has, giving it full 100%, total dedication. And thus, it's the miracle itself that proves that Joseph gave it his all. Is there a greater example of full commitment to God? Says the Rambam. There's some people, there's some mitzvahs, there's some deeds that are so incredible because they demonstrate that a person could be 100% with every fiber of their being committed to the Almighty. And such an example is indeed the greatest representation of sanctification of God's name, of love of God, of doing a mitzvah for its correct intentions. If there was any reason for Joseph to not be as committed, he would have yielded. From the fact that he gets the miracle, that indeed proves that he fought with everything, complete, total commitment to God, and thus such a deed is indeed worthy of the distinction of being an act done with the complete, proper intention, and indeed a deed that is worthwhile of being considered something done out of love of God and in sanctification of God's name. I want to suggest a second answer. And the second answer argues that the appearance of this hologram was not miraculous at all. In fact, Joseph himself conjured it. Now, how did Joseph conjure it? How did he bring about this image of his father in the window and create the opportunity for him to be extricated from this very difficult predicament. So perhaps we can suggest Joseph was out of options. But he still had an ace up his sleeve. He was prepared for such an eventuality. He created this conflict, so to speak, and he told himself using what he imagined in his mind, Joseph has an appearance, so to speak, of Jacob in the window, he creates this test, this contest, if you will, that gives him this very stark choice. Do you want to go ahead with the sin? Knowing that you're going to forfeit something in eternity or not? What this is perhaps telling us is, that Joseph created a challenge that would enable him to survive when nothing else would work. 
He forced himself to make a cost-benefit analysis at a time where math and calculations really should not work. He said like this, Yetzirah, evil inclination, is fighting really, really hard. And it's really full-core press trying to get me to sin. The only way Joseph realizes, the only way tactically to resist it is you have to present an argument on the other side, which is something that the Yetzirah itself is not desirous of. Meaning, Joseph doesn't want to sin. Yetzirah says you got to sin. Yetzirah creates all these fantasies and all these desires, and the Yetzirah is really motivated to get Joseph to sin. Joseph realizes that the only way for him to resist the onslaught is if he creates something on the other side, so to speak, on the other option, that the Yetzirah itself is fearful of, and that is eternal shame. Joseph tells himself, so to speak, he's wrestling with himself, and he says, yes, I want this, but what comes along with it, what comes along with it is something that even my Yetzirah doesn't want. Even the Yetzirah doesn't want this eternal shame of being labeled as a patron of women of ill repute. And thus, what he does is he forces his desire, so to speak, into a corner. He handcuffs his Yetzirah and forces it to quell or to quiet or to mitigate its effort to try to sin. It's a very deep idea here. You could force the Yetzirah to not be desirous of what it's trying to get you to do. And you could force it to obey your will and to concede to your will and to will of God. And someone who does that, someone who fights the Yetzirah with such cleverness by creating, like, so to speak, this artificial reality that would result from yielding to what the Yetzirah wants, someone who does that is indeed worthy of the distinction of someone who really honors the name of God. The Talmud tells us, in the book of Babasra, that if there is a person who says, I want to give charity, but I want to give charity specifically so I get a nice kickback, so something good happens to me. Says the Talmud, behold, such a person is a complete tzaddik, a completely righteous person. And we can ask the same question. Wait a minute. The person specifically said that they want to get something in return for giving charity. So why indeed are they classified as someone who's a complete tzaddik? And the answer is like this. The answer is when someone wants to resist the Yetzirah, Yetzirah, even when she says, don't give charity. You want to give charity. Your soul wants to give charity. Your good inclination wants to give charity. It's a mitzvah to give charity. But the Yetzirah says, yeah, give charity, you have less money. You Maybe you'll become poor. Maybe you'll be able to pay your bills. That's what the Yetzirah says. So there are a few ways to try to resist, so to speak, the Yetzirah. You could try to brute force it. Might not work. But what you can do is say, I'm going to try to get the Yetzirah on board. 
I'm going to try to make this mitzvah desirous, not just by my soul, but also by the Yitzhara. So what this person did is he linked the mitzvah that the Yitzhara does not want with something the Yitzhara does want. And thus he handcuffed and forced the Yitzhara to rubber stamp his mitzvah. That's what Joseph did. Joseph conjures this image. And he says to his Yitzhah, of course, you're desirous of this sin, but do you want to be forever remembered as this sinner and have the eternal shame and be called a patron of harlots? Do you want that? And the Yitzhah says, ooh, that sounds kind of embarrassing. I don't want anyone to know about what's happening over here. Ugh, maybe we shouldn't go ahead with this. Joseph, like the complete Sadiq and Talmud of Babastra, Joseph is deploying this incredible tactic that is forcing the Eid Sahara to go against its own agenda. And someone who acts with such ingenuity to fight the Eid Sahara is indeed, such a, such a deed, such an action is indeed worthy of being described as someone who is really completely motivated towards fulfilling the will of God. And they're even willing to wrestle with themselves and to incentivize themselves and to dupe and to bribe the Yitzharat to get on board. Someone like that is indeed, or an action like that is indeed worth worthy of that distinction. I think some very valuable lessons in life from this. First of all, we have the idea that you have to give 100%. You want to break through? You got to give 100%. And that doesn't matter if it's business or war or fighting the Yitzharat or getting a miracle of any sort, the Almighty steps in after we have done what we can. After Joseph gave 100%, the Almighty makes this hologram and saves him. That's one idea. Alternatively, there's another insight, another potential way to explain what's happening over here is that Joseph created a new way to fight with the Yetzirah, to force the Yetzirah to obey our will, to make it reluctantly swallow, so to speak, the bitter pill of growing against its agenda, of incentivizing the Yetzirah to get on board. And this also teaches us a very valuable insight. You know, when we want to get our children to do what's good, to study Torah or to have good manners or to clear off the table or to do their homework or to brush their teeth, we incentivize them. We bribe them. In effect, what we're doing is they have a Yetzirah, it's very strong, Yetzirah says, I'm lazy, I'm tired, whatever. You get the Yetzirah to say, do the mitzvah. You're bribing the Yetzirah to be desirous of the good. And that's not a tactic only for children. Joseph shows us this is also a tactic for adults, and that is not a reduction in commitment. To the contrary, when someone resists temptation via this method of Joseph, it actually shows total commitment, total dedication, and that ensuing behavior can justifiably be classified as a complete mitzvah, a mitzvah done with the utmost purity, a mitzvah that is considered Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, a mitzvah, like the Ram tells us, that would ensure the person who does it a ticket, a guaranteed ticket for eternity in Olam Abba. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. And if you are a new listener and you don't know what A and Q means, A and Q stands for answers and questions. It's the opposite of questions and answers. A question and answer would be 
where the audience would perhaps ask me a question and I'd have to come up with an answer. And that's a great, but on the partial podcast, we do it the other way around. I ask the audience a question and the audience gives me their answers. And of course, you can email me with your answers, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. So first of all, I want to mention that last year, actually listen to last year's offering of the Parsha podcast. And at the very end of last year's Parsha podcast, I asked a question. We weren't doing the A&Q last year, so I don't think I got any responses to the question. But I still have a question and I don't have an answer. And that is when Tamar, she realizes that the third son of Judah was not given to her as a spouse, as a husband. And therefore, she takes off the garments of the widow and she seduces Judah and we know the story. And the question that I had last year, and I still have an answer to, and this is not going to be this year's A&Q, but if you do have the answer, I would love the answer. Why does Tamar, why does she seduce Judah, the father of her two deceased husbands, and not Shelah, the third brother that is really next in line, in marrying her after her two husbands died. I don't have an answer to it. I think there's a simple answer that, well, she discovered that Judah was was near and maybe she would have seduced Shayla if the opportunity arose. But if someone has a different answer, I'd be very curious to hear it. But here's this week's A&Q. The question is as follows. Every pivotal transition in Joseph's life happens via dreams. The brothers don't like him, but they really, really can't stand him and they really hate him and they really get envious and jealous of him when he shares the two dreams of his own grandeur of them bowing down to him. And that, of course, sets off the domino effect, the series of events to bring about him being sold as a slave and eventually ending up in Egypt. And then he is imprisoned. And at the end of this, he's Parsha. He has two cellmates, the baker and the butler, and they have dreams. And once again, Joseph plays a role which is going to be very pivotal for him in his life. He interprets their dreams. And eventually, in Etch's Parsha, Pharaoh has two dreams. And the butler remembers Joseph being a very gifted dream interpreter. And that's how Joseph ends up before Pharaoh. And in Etch's Parsha, I don't want to spoil it for you, but in Parsha, Joseph becomes the viceroy of Egypt. So I think it's really interesting that every transition in Joseph's life happens via dreams. It's such an unusual coincidence, and we know it cannot be a coincidence. And it's also interesting that these dreams apparently come in pairs. Seemingly, it could have been three dreams instead of six. He has one dream of his own grandeur and makes his brothers hate him. One person, one aid of Pharaoh has a dream, Joseph interprets it correctly, and that would be enough to prove his bona fides in the eyes of the butler. Pharaoh has one dream, actually, Parsha. Apparently, and correct me if I'm wrong, apparently that would be enough to have the exact same story. But somehow it comes in pairs. So here's the question. What is the significance of Joseph's transformations happening specifically via dreams and why do they come in pairs? And if you have an answer, email me, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Okay, last week's question was when the angel finishes his scuffle with Jacob that lasts the entire night. He tells Jacob, leave me because it is dawn. 
And Rashi tells us, based upon the Talmud, that this is the day that the angel has to sing praise in front of God. And the Talmud adds that since this angel was created, he never had an opportunity to sing praise. And this is, this is his time. This is the one time in the angel's entire existence that the angel is going to sing praise. And the question we asked is, why this day in particular, the only day that we know of where a man, Jacob, has a struggle with the angel, that's also the same day that the angel has to sing praise before God. And as usual, the audience of the Parsha podcast is undefeated, and we got a bunch of interesting and creative answers. But I had an idea that I had already thought of last week, that it's not that this day coincidentally is the day that the angel was supposed to battle with Jacob, but it was specifically because of this encounter. And the idea that I had was that an angel is like a mission of God, so to speak, an isolated mission of God. And the angel only gets to sing praise when the angel's mission has been fulfilled. And we believe that an angel that comes to resist us, like we talked about the Yetzirah just a bit earlier, Yetzirah is an angel. It's a force of God that is there to get us to sin and to get us to not want to do mitzvos, to not want to do the will of God. And that angel is not an opposing force to God. In fact, that is an emissary of God himself. The Almighty wants us to have free will. The Almighty wants us to wrestle and to struggle and to not be easy for us to obey his will. And thus, when we overcome the resistance, when we are able to harness our efforts and be able to overcome, and we have the tenacity to resist and to fight and to win, well then, our mitzvahs, our good deeds matter. And thus, this angel... This angel is there as an emissary of God. Of course, he's called the angel of Esav. But ultimately, it's a force of God, an emissary of God, whose role it is to resist and to battle and to struggle with Jacob. And thus, after a whole night of struggling, he has fulfilled his mission. And consequently, now it's time for him to go sing praise. That was the idea that I had. Now, I had a kind listener named Abe who sent me a bunch of citations from a book called Avodas Yisrael, written by one of the Hasidic masters. And he says this point, but he adds another wrinkle, which I thought was very interesting. The angel is not just there to struggle with men. The angel's true focus, primary existence, is to struggle with man, but to ultimately be defeated by man. So it's almost like a, like a trainer. Think of a trainer. Right? A trainer is there to provide resistance for the person who's, who's working out, who's training. And even though he's fighting back, ultimately he wants to lose because ultimately it's about the person who is being trained to give them the resistance, but ultimately they should win. So, the fulfillment of this angel, we call the angel the Yetzirah, the Satan. Uh, there is an angel whose name we don't pronounce. We call it sometimes Samachmem. I've heard it called as Uncle Sam, which I thought was really interesting. But that's this evil angel, so to speak. 
The evil angel is also an angel of God. And the verse tells us that God saw that everything that he made, and behold, it was exceedingly good, says the Midrash, it was good. That refers to the good inclination. It was exceedingly good. Tov me'od, very, very, very good. That refers to the evil inclination. Wait a minute. The evil inclination is supposed to be good? Yes. Because the evil inclination is there to give us meaning and value in our life when we overcome it and when we defeat it. So this angel, this bad angel, the angel of Esau, the evil inclination, the Satan, the Uncle Sam, its mission, it's not just to resist and to struggle with Jacob, with mankind. Its mission is to be totally defeated by mankind. Its role is to lose. And this is the first time that it has encountered a man, Jacob, who has completely defeated it. And therefore, now and now alone is the time for it reciting praise before God because now it has finally fulfilled its mission. So what this means is it's not like the angel had a day that was allocated for it in the calendar. No. Whenever there was going to be a person that completely overwhelmed the angel, did not yield an inch, that is when it has fulfilled its mission and that's when it would go and sing praise before God. It's a very valuable, important principle that really there is no counterweight to God. All the angels are all emissaries of God doing a good thing. Without resistance, life would have no meaning. You pump weights and it's really painful and it hurts a lot. That is the point. This force is exceedingly good and its stated mission is for us to not only struggle with it, but hopefully, like Jacob, to have a certain modicum of victory and triumph over it. That is what it is desirous of. And may we be so fortunate to also get some angels to sing before God and also overcome our temptations. Of course, in our Parsha and in the previous Parsha, we have great shining examples of what that looks like. Jacob overcomes his temptation or overcomes his resistance Joseph in this week's parish overcomes his resistance and they are, of course, heroes for us, heroes for all time. May we too be so fortunate. I thank you all for listening. Have an amazing, fantastic, splendid Shabbos. Send me an email, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. And please, God, we will discuss, we will talk, we will schmooze next week.